You are now listening to the A&R Design Unholstered Podcast with Alex Costa. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to the A&R Design Unholstered Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Costa. This is episode nine, and our guest today is one of my best friends, Zach Hine, who is the Director of Marketing at Weatherby. Formerly uh, worked at CZ and was um, the person at CZ that really helped me out get into and involved with uh, the CZ pistols and rifles and whatnot. But Zach is now at Weatherby, and he is uh, kind enough to take time out of his busy schedule to join us on the podcast today. Uh, Zach, take it away. Heck yeah. No, uh, yeah, I think we met at an NRA show, and uh, you just walked up and said, we need to be friends. Yep. And I was like, I know I've seen his Instagram stuff somewhere. Uh, I guess we could maybe be friends. Okay, that's not what happened. <laughs> that is not what happened. I think that's exactly what happened. No, so I sent you a message on Instagram like six months prior, and I said, hey, we do a lot of CZ holsters. I'd like to get some CZ pistols direct from you that I can't get locally. Um, is there anything we can work, a deal that we can work out where I can just buy stuff from you? And you never sent the reply email. It sat in your draft box for six months. And then yeah, uh, my wife and I were at the NRA convention in Louisville, Kentucky, and I went up to introduce myself to you, and I'm like, hey, Zach, it's Alex. So nice to meet you. And you're like, hey, I'm super busy. Here's a couple free hats. And that was it. <laughs> that was it. It wasn't until um, Atlanta, Georgia, NRA that we really got to connect uh, more closely. Yeah, I just don't remember it that way. I don't know. I think yeah. we fell in love that trip, too. And we got Day Day yeah, really I, drunk. I don't remember that either. I, I just remember getting Day Day super drunk. Yeah. <laughs> She probably needed it. Amen. All right, moving on. So you're at Weatherby now. You're a new hire there. Tell us a little bit about what you do there, what your role is, and, and what your future at Weatherby is looking like. Well, um, so I'm the director of marketing over here, so really just coordinating all the content. We've got quite a big content machine. We've got a podcast, which I'm here in the podcast room. We've got uh, a bunch of films that we put out. So kind of going back to way back, Roy Weatherby, who's, who established Weatherby, um, he was an avid photographer and videographer back in the day, and he'd do, he'd do his own hunting films uh, back when that wasn't cool, back when you didn't do that. And so uh, we've always really had a, you know, a strong content background, and they're, some of the films that are going to be coming out, some of the films that have come out lately, pretty, pretty sweet. So a lot of stuff focused on uh, Western hunting. Uh, we're based out in Wyoming. And so a lot of stuff in Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. Um, so yeah, chasing off, chasing bears, uh, chasing a lot of birds this year. So they don't have a whole lot of bird stuff. And I'm definitely a bird guy. So. Bird guy. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got huns, we've got sharp tails, we've got sage grouse, which has a limited season out here. Uh, and then for some reason, I think it's because all the bird farms are on, we have a ridiculous number of pheasants uh, here in Sheridan, which is just amazing. So and you uh, love pheasants. Yeah, on the walk from my house to my car, I'll, I'll hear at least one pheasant crowing every morning. That's awesome. So and it's in town. So that's it's, awesome. It's, it's neat. Gets the hair standing up on the back of your neck, like I want to shoot that bird. For the the first few times, and then it just gets annoying because you're like, yeah, I can't shoot that bird. It's in town. So it just it kind of becomes a frustration. So 
<laughs> yeah. Yep. So Zach, uh, you're from Kansas originally. Um, we've done an annual Kansas trip the last couple of years together. Uh, you taught me how to hunt pheasant. Um, you mentored me on uh, pheasant and quail in yep. Kansas, which is super well, exciting. Really? I got you into hunting in general. You did. Um, you did. Yeah. Because it, it just sound, it was kind of ridiculous to me that you lived up uh, in New Hampshire with all the opportunities you had and didn't know how to get into it and didn't have a way to jump in. I didn't have somebody there to, to mentor you. So, Yeah, I don't have a lot of friends that hunt. Um, I'm yep. from Cape Cod originally. My parents, my neighbor hunted, but I never saw him bring home a deer. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, my, my parents weren't anti-gun, um, but they weren't pro-gun either. They were just kind of indifferent. And um, we never really ate wild game growing up. And then when I got out of college, I bought a shotgun and a pistol and started shooting. But um, yeah, never got into hunting. And you really, you're like, what, what's stopping you? I was like, I don't know yeah. where to start. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to look, what resources, what to do. And you organized a, you conveniently organized a hunt with Project Upland in New Hampshire. They made it a lot easier. <laughs> you brought the hunt, you brought the hunt to me. And then you introduced me to AJ and uh, Joe Levescu, and they kind of mentored me on, uh, mentored us on rough grouse and, excuse me, on woodcock. And that was, oh man, that was almost five years ago now, right? I yeah, yeah, it didn't feel that long ago. It'll be it, five years. It's crazy because because every state's different. So when you when you you know we're talking over the phone or whatever, and I'm trying to t- teach you how to get into hunting. I don't know anything about New Hampshire. Yeah. Uh, the land there, like the land access, all the stuff. The fact that if it's not marked, you can just hunt it. Yeah. I was like. Private property. You can hunt New Hampshire. Yeah. So if you pull over, you pull over on the side of the road and you see like a woodcock cover and you bring up Onyx and you know it's private property and it says like whoever owns it, but it's not posted, no trespassing. You can legally with a firearm walk onto that person's property with a dog and hunt birds. I get you shot out here in Wyoming or Kansas. <laughs> I mean, it's just so every state's different, um, and they all have their benefits, their you know their pluses, their negatives. Just understanding what that means, though, understanding what the opportunities are. Some places, like in Kansas, there's only two percent public lands, right? And man, without the walk-in hunting program, it's it would be terrible, terrible. Okay, so, so explain walk-in hunting program in Kansas. Because we sure. did hunt, we did hunt public land at one point. We did get some quail out of some public land, right? Uh, this I past, don't know if we... yeah, we did that like little like park area. They had like that wooden brown sign at the front. It wasn't private. Okay. Well, remember the wind part, picked up. That storm blew through, and the wind really, really, really picked up. I hunt a lot, Alex. Um, I don't remember it, but damn. Um, what we hunted, we hunted probably 98% walk-in. So what that means is it's uh, it's private land that's been enrolled in the state program that allows hunters between, there are a couple different windows, but between the opening of hunting season, September 1 and through January 31st, um, to be able to come on and, and hunt. You know, it might be specific species. It might be only birds. It might be only turkeys. Um, they might not allow rifle deer hunting, but it gives public access on private land. Um, and they basically, they, they pick and choose. They want to have some for, for pheasants, quail. They want to have some for turkey, some for deer, some for uh, 
uh, prairie chickens, um, some for geese, like having green wheat fields that are in walking, you drive by them and you go, what can you hunt there? Well, you can shoot geese off that. So, so they've got a mix. They try to get a mix all over the state of different lands and different habitats uh, to give folks as many hunting opportunities as they can. And because it's the walk-in hunting access program, you can't drive a vehicle onto it. You basically pull up to it and you can walk in and bring your dogs and bring your guns and, and uh, shoot birds. So it, it gives opportunity where 50 years ago, you'd be able to go, you know, if you pull up to a place that looked like it was good cover for, for pheasants and quail, you could find the, the farmhouses right near it. And they'd probably be the ones that owned it or knew the owners. Mm -hmm. And you could knock on the door and try to get permission. And nowadays, all those little farms are gone. Um, you, you have a bunch of big farmers that, you know, the, the farmhouse is, is probably the guy who works on the farm. He's, he's living there and, and taking care of the property and taking care of machinery. He's not the owner. He doesn't have to give the permissions. And so getting access in Kansas on private lands is very difficult nowadays. Um, and without the walk-in program, it would be almost impossible. So it's a very valuable program. It's open to in-state, out-of-staters. I mean, that's where you're going to drive down the road. You're going to pull up to a, a piece of walk-in. You look at it on X, and you go, that's going to be a great one. And opening weekend, you pull up there. There might be Alabama plates on one corner and yep. Kentucky plates on another corner because, you know, people are doing the exact same thing you are. So, so yeah, uh, a lot of out-of-staters brings a lot of people in, which is a great thing. Um, on that hunt, I think... Not necessarily on the hunt that you were on, but on that in that uh, week and a half that I did kind of the, the out in the back, we covered, we hunted in 13 counties. We got up 18 cubbies of quail, um, a ton of roosters. So 18 cubbies of quail. Now that was la the year prior. We only got about five cubbies of quail. So the quail population yeah. really had a good year. Yeah, that year I think when they, so there are different uh, different ways they kind of measure. What the what the quail population is doing and one of them is the the call count i don't remember exactly what they call it but uh, it's where uh, post office workers that are on a rural route they actually stop every once in a while and listen for calls and basically gauge the uh the population based on the number of calls they're hearing in the mornings um that's wild. last year it was like the the population two years ago was good like it was up quite a bit from what it normally is and last year it was up 783% in some of those counties we were hunting. Wow. It was incredible. The, and we the, saw that. It reflected. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Big cubbies and more of them. So um, I saw the biggest cubby of quail I've ever seen in my life uh, last year uh, out in western Kansas. So, and we got, we got into quail all the way out to places I didn't think. I thought we were too far west to really get into the quail. Um, and that we were on a uh, death hike. Old... It was an old railroad railroad bed, not that, not the death hike, but the one where we oh uh, right right did right. the railroad bed up through. Yeah, we got multiple cubbies of quail up there, and that's so far west. I didn't expect to find quail that that's, far. That's awesome. So it was excellent. It was excellent. Yeah, we had a strip of walk-in that, that kind of was just all around where a, an old railroad bed was, and it was all grown up, and it was perfect. So yeah, we did that two separate days. We did a little bit the first day for pheasant, and then we hit it. We did a hipster, a hipster upland hunt. So we all got dressed yeah. up in hipster. I had like a, a Vietnam era 
uh, jacket and a scally cap on, and people got in full, you know, full suits oh, and garb. Tweed suits. Tweed suits, like yeah. The, the smoking jackets with the elbow pads and all that stuff. Yeah, it was one of those things where uh, in the Upland community, there's a lot of grief for being hipsters. And uh, on the CZ side, there's a lot of grief for being hipsters. So they kind of, you know, come together there. And we're like, we're going to lean in even further on this. And did a, did a, uh, we gave points and everything. Yeah, so. Sam, Sam did pretty well. He, he busted out the full tweed suit. Um, ah, yes. Uh, our friend Sam. So that was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, yeah, and then. And then, and then to top it off, we had to all pick out of a hat guns, and I got hammer-fired 18-inch double gun, two-trigger double gun, and I was like, I'm not going to hit shit with this, and I knocked some quail. So Yes, you did. Yeah, it's actually not a bad gun for quail, especially in those tight conditions. Tight, uh, tight, tight cover. And it's a blunderbust, and I was uh, and it had enough recoil that I accidentally banged both triggers one time and put a flurry of bird shot up, and I, I knocked the bird. So you know it worked out. Well, even a blind blind squirrel. Squ- all right, blind joke's over. Can't say it. Nope, nope, nope. Yeah, he, he missed yeah. it. Um, yeah. All right, so let's go back on track. So that's some good storytelling. But um, I got some notes here. So we did our first hunt in New Hampshire. We, you know, it was the first time being introduced to it. I was dead set on carrying a Supreme Field, um, yeah, over under an over yeah. under twelve gauge, and I love that gun. I think it's a beautiful gun. It's a gorgeous gun, gorgeous wood. You handpicked that for me, but I learned real quick that uh, side by sides and lighter profile shotguns is the way to fucking go. Uh, yeah. New Hampshire is dense, dense, dense cover. Um, this gorgeous side by side or over under is getting beat to shit and i needed something a little bit more rugged side by sides for me i actually shoot them quite quite a bit better and um i ended up switching eventually to a sharp tail 20 gauge side by side but i learned a lot that trip um i I did not shoot a grouse you shot a rough grouse um i shot a couple woodcock and uh it we got snowed out Um, we yeah it dumped it dumped right as we were driving up the, the day that we went up there, they were they were telling us that, oh, we pushed um, 25 grouse yesterday. We're going to be, you know, knee deep in grouse all week. It's going to be an epic, epic hunt, epic video. And then we got 28 inches of snow on the way up there. And we spent the whole first day cutting down trees with a chainsaw and getting to camp. We had to camp. Go buy a chainsaw. We had to, we had to buy, buy a chainsaw, chainsaw and then get to camp. to be able to get back up in. Yeah. It was, a, it was an adventure. And. I think for people that are getting into hunting, uh, it's not always about killing the animals. It is uh, about the whole process and the adventure. Oh, the experience. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's a hunt I'm never going to forget. That was that was a blast. Um, and honestly, it was my it's my first time ever hunting grouse and woodcock. Like I've hunted I've hunted a lot of different birds, and I've never been to New England. I've never hunted grouse. Um, and it, getting back to the shotguns, I was just I was ribbing you because you. You know, you love that over under, but it, it's kind of blasphemy to uh, go into the grouse woods in New England yep. and take anything but a side by side. Yep. So and I learned that. So I gave you <laughs> so much grief about it, and so then I was picking up my gun. I was like, "Well, crud! Now I got to get a side by side to shoot." And so uh, I picked out a side by side, and that that was the experience that really kind of pushed me over the edge. Now I'm a through and through side by side guy. Yeah. Like I've my collection has grown a lot in the last few years 
Yep. Um, just in the side by side mill. So, so that uh, that was a mistake on my part because now I've got just a boatload of side by sides. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we uh, we had a good hunt. You know, you got you got to see some of the more beautiful parts of New Hampshire as well. Yeah. Um, we were up in a very very secluded part of New Hampshire, uh, a lot of a place that a lot of people don't get to experience. So it was gorgeous. We're hiking up the sides of mountains, chasing birds. Um, it was cold. It was miserable some days. Some days were warm and nice, but we had a really, really solid trip. And, uh, you know, to remind everyone about hunting too, Zach and I went on, excuse me, an Idaho elk trip, you know, in the Frank Church Wilderness at 8,000 feet on horseback, and neither of us shot an animal. So, one of us had an opportunity, but, you know. What do you mean mm. one of us had? Now, you're standing right next to me. I stand right <laughs> behind you. Otherwise, that elk would have been dead. No, you had your gun slung. There was no way. I had scope covers on because we were we were actually getting real close to getting ready for lunch, and we are kind of, all right, got to get some energy in us, like kind of starting to slack. And we heard one bugling to our right in a hole, and we're like, oh, all right, that one's going to sit there for a while, so let's go have lunch. And we're getting ready, and this satellite bull pops right up in front of us. And, man, I had my crosshairs on for a heartbeat, but he went down the ridge, and that was it. But um, that's a a story for another time. But um, for everyone that is getting into hunting, you don't always have to uh, shoot something. It's the whole experience, being up in Idaho – uh, at that elevation through it was arduous to say the least through the smoke of california wildfires it was apocalyptic and um it was it was truly a, an amazing experience to be up there and um i think the nice thing with hunting for me that i that i get out of it is it's essentially hiking for for me at least in new hampshire hunting in new hampshire is hiking and i hate hiking i i don't I don't find the enjoyment that other people have for hiking. Like, oh, I climbed this mountain today. Yay. And then I had to climb back down it. Like, I don't enjoy that. I don't. I don't know why. I just don't. It's just I love sightseeing, but I just, I'm not going to fucking hoof a bunch of shit up to hoof a bunch of shit down with no purpose. I, I And I found that hunting has gotten me outdoors so much more, and I enjoy, um, I enjoy the scenery a lot more because when you get into hunting and you start going down that path you start looking at habitats you're not just looking around being like oh that tree's pretty oh this landscape is pretty you start looking at habitat going oh that that uh mid growth would that mid growth is sandwiched between new growth and old growth there's that's grousey there's definitely birds in there or you got um like old apple orchards or birch trees in a field and you're like oh That'll hold woodcock through the summer. That's a place that I'm going to want to walk with the dog, and, and I'm definitely going to put up a bird out of that cover. Uh, and, and it comes down to even, like, you know, elk, deer, turkey, all of it, you know. Um, it changes the way you look at everything as you're driving through. So it might have been your normal commute back into, you know, to the office, but now you're looking at it in a completely different way. You're going, that is something I need to actually investigate. Yes. And understand that you'll start learning the trees you'll start learning the plants it just it changes the way you see nature every day it does it really truly does and um aj tipped me off to a woodcock cover and i've been no dog hunting that cover for two seasons now and i have had 
limit days without a dog. So uh, just just observing, you know, what kind of bird you're hunting. You've had experience hunting that bird. You know how that bird's going to behave. And you can start to connect the dots even without a dog. And which will probably make me with my dog when she gets on birds this fall might make it more. I'll be more successful because I know what to put her on and where where to kind of guide her to, to, to bring success for her. So uh, hunting in general, not just bird hunting with dogs, but just hunting in general is is it, it completely changes your, your perspective of the wilderness, wildlife and habitat around you. Um, you just start looking at it differently. I'm an engineer. Yeah, I'm a mechanical engineer. I look at the whole world differently because I want to know how this was made and that was made. And, oh, this fucking aluminum receiver, that's definitely an extrusion. And then they you know, machine it afterwards. Like, it just gives you perspective. So hunting game in certain habitats, you start to have a different perspective on the wilderness and the outdoors. And it, it brings, like, a greater feeling of purpose when you're actually out there. Sure. And, and well, not- there are a couple things, like, using hunting as an excuse for a vacation like finding a getaway finding a thing to do yeah like you you can go sit on a beach somewhere you know that that that's nice in its own right but when you are like planning for a for an elk hunt in idaho where it's not a it's not like a relaxing vacation but it's a vacation from all the stresses and all the all the normal stuff and putting a completely different set of stresses and and just getting you out of your element um it's like out here in wyoming um the last few years i've been going to uh, the kind of the lander area to hunt sage grouse and you get out in those sage flats and it's just there's nothing flat forever it's just sage it's just rolling hills and sage and it has no value to you until you realize that that's the only thing that's keeping these sage grouse around is having that uninterrupted habitat um if somebody would start you know start to develop that or if they were to, you know, burn it and, you know, graze cattle, you know, and then set up a cattle operation there, that's going to push those birds further and further out and into little pockets of cover because they need those big expanses. So hunting for me has shown me the value of, of different habitats that, that are foreign to me. Like that, that sage flat, in my mind, I, I never even thought about it back in Kansas. Like, but now, now that I've been there and seen it, and experience that, that that's the only thing that's keeping these sage grass around, now it has value to me. Right. Before it had zero value to me. I had, I had no perspective on it. But now it's like, yeah, I wanna make sure that, you know, I wanna be involved with, with organizations that help protect that and right. protect it forever. Um, and there are some really great organizations all over the nation that are finding ways to preserve, build habitat for all different species. Right. And depending on where you are, they're completely different organizations. So, so yeah, like up where you are, I mean, Rough Grass Society, American Woodcock Society, um, Pheasants Forever, Well Forever, down where I am, QUWF, which is what I was a member of back in Kansas. Um, and then you get like Wyoming Wildlife Federation out here um, and a bunch of different organizations across the U.S. that uh, they understand what their area needs for habitat, for their game. And they're working with everybody involved to try to protect and build that. Yep. So. It's uh, like New Hampshire. We Joe Levesque was telling us that they were working with uh, the logging. So the area that we hunted together on our first hunt um, is is kind of renowned in this area. 
but there's a lot of logging up there. And they started working with the logging companies to do like a patch quilt logging um, uh, deforestation of uh, the woods. So you'll get these you'll get these patch quilts from satellite feed, and you'll get old growth, mid growth, new growth, and then they rotate it. And what they are is grouse. Rough grouse are an insanely complex animal. They they need the mid growth is where they kind of hang out during the day. The new growth they'll get buds and stuff in the winter time when they're not feeding on the ground, and then they use the old growth to for for security and shelter at nighttime. So they're a very complex animal. And again, there's where that perspective comes in when you're looking at habitats. You're like, oh, there's some old growth in between a cut where they, you know, they, a couple of years ago, they cut all these trees down, you know, 10, 15 years ago, they cut these trees down to potentially develop. It never got developed. So now you have new growth, mid growth, old growth. There might be birds in there. And we're seeing even down where I hunt those woodcock in that cover, dude, we flushed three, three grouse last year out of it. And we'd never get grouse that far south. So that might be an indicator last year that the grouse population up north for resident um, older birds is strong and the younger birds are getting pushed out and farther south. Hmm. Um, the tick population here is really bad this year. Hmm. Um, Do they eat ticks? No. So ticks are the number one killer of rough grouse. See? Something I wouldn't know. Another thing is like as an outsider looking in, I would think that logging would be always bad, right? Yep. Um, you just think that, yeah, you're deforesting, you're, you're getting rid of cover. Well, for grouse, that's absolutely the opposite. They need actual, like, planned logging. Yep. So that you end up with those different stages of growth. And so. since they started doing that, the population has been much stronger. I mean, it would come just like the burn down in Kansas. You know, you guys burn the prairies, but it comes back stronger than ever. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we were talking to Kevin Murphy and he was super anti-logging for a really long time. And then he started learning about the habitats and how, like, controlled logging actually is, is super, super imperative to the, um, the existence of certain species. So, um, you know, don't always, you know, you get these super, you know, earthy environmentalists that are like, you can't cut down a single tree. It's horrible. But, you know, I mean, I can't say this for all hunters, but hunting with you and the people that you keep around you are conservationists through and through they they just the difference between protectionists and conservationists yes so a protectionist just wants those animals to be safe and secure and all that and they don't understand there's more involved and sometimes you need to take that those trees out sometimes you need to have a you know some type of uh, habitat management system and also there are times where you need to take um, either older males uh, depending on what you're talking, what species you're talking about, maybe you need to be, be need to be impacting the predators a little bit. Yep. Um, so there are a lot of different things that, uh, as far as from a conservation standpoint, it might not make sense to somebody who just wants to protect animals. But you're doing better for the animals by taking, you know, some animals. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's yeah. a balance. People don't realize there's a balance, and yep. um, it's super super important. You know. Um, all over TV, you'll see, oh, the wolves are being killed in Idaho, left and right. Well, we were out there, and we saw lots of evidence. We didn't see a fucking wolf. You know, they are super smart, super elusive. Uh, there's no known modern-day, uh, you know, wolves killing a human event. Um, not to say it didn't happen in the Western expansion, but, um, you know, they're... 
the wolves up in Idaho are an introduced species. And they you talk to hunters up there. Yeah, yeah reintroduced species. Um, and the way that they they basically have completely changed the landscape, you know, where elk would just be out in the plains and now you don't get them in certain areas because the wolves are so heavy. Um, um, I'm going on a Nilgai hunt, not a Nilgai hunt. I'm going on a Gemsbach Oryx hunt in uh, New Mexico in August. And um, I, f- I forget why, but there was an invasive plant, I think. I believe it's an impl- invasive plant species. And the animal that consumes that plant is a Gemsbach Oryx. So they introduced Gemsbach Oryx to certain areas of New Mexico up in the mountains to manage this plant species. And Gemsbach Oryx reproduce like rabbits. So now you have an African plains species that lives naturally in New Mexico that you can hunt as a resident and an out-of-state resident. But again, it's on private property, so you do have to hire a guide and get permission. But, you know, there's... there's it's it, the wildlife is wild. Like I just shot an axis in Texas, a wild axis, not on someone's high fence property. This was a wild axis, 200 something pounder. And, uh, just came strolling through my buddy's property, you know, and they have a huge axis population, uh, down there near Menard. And, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, you have, it's, it's wild. So, um, and, and, and that goes into like the different species and know what's in your area, uh, I'm up in New Hampshire. We got black bear. Uh, we have a lottery system for moose. We've got whitetail, turkey, um, snow hare. I have a ton in me out behind my house. Uh, there's no season on. There's an open season year round on coyotes. You can't hunt bobcat, but we got bobcats. Um, there is trapping here. You can do um, fox and other furred animals. We have a squirrel season. Three squirrel seasons um and we've got grouse we've got quail yeah but they stock in some parts there there are northeast quail um northeast um bob whites here but they're mostly in massachusetts and they're very small uh population and then there's a stocked population uh we don't have pheasant natural up here but we the the state stocks twenty two thousand birds a year um so there's opportunities for pheasant um, and one thing you taught me was every year buy all the tags. I don't I don't buy the fur trapping tags, but I buy everything that I can possibly shoot tags um, because that money goes back into conservation of those habitats. Yep. So it might be an extra hundred dollars, but that hundred dollars is almost a donation. It's going to the great going to a great place. You're actually focusing where your money's going, and even for people who don't hunt, if you want to be a you know contribute in some way, buy a duck stand. Um, to, to hunt ducks, you have to have this federal stamp. There's a state stamp too, but post office, buy right? Buy a duck stamp. Yeah, you can go to post office and buy it, and that money goes right to conservation. So it's not a whole lot of money, and it goes directly to something that needs money. So, yep. yeah. Jorge so, and I were talking the other day. He's we were talking about taxes, and he's like, "It would be so cool if you could pick where your tax money goes every year, and that there's a lottery pool." Uh, like, oh, I want all my taxes to go to conservation. But once the conservation pool is filled up, you get to donate your taxes. You know, there's a list like, oh, I could break my taxes down. If you want to donate to conservation, there are ways, like Zach just said. Buy a debt well, stamp. Go buy a fucking license. Spend the money. Much to the chagrin of some people, some people who are, you know, into shooting but not hunting, um, 
that we actually got a lot of grief in my previous life through the post about this. So uh, an FET, 11%. So when you buy guns and ammo, you are contributing to conservation. Um, so there's a 11% FET on all rifles, shotguns, ammo, uh, some bow stuff. So uh, that money goes directly back into conservation. That not only, you know, it doesn't, doesn't just help hunters, it helps nationwide for public lands. Uh, so that's the major source of money. And then those states actually have to, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how it works in every state, but they have to have maybe matching funds that are, that are brought in from licenses and fees to be able to access those federal funds. So when you buy a duck stamp, when you buy a gun or go out and buy ammo, if you can find ammo right now, um, that, there is a portion of that money that's going directly to helping conservation in the United States. Um, so when you go and buy, even if you don't hunt, if you were to buy a hunting license in your state, um, that money is helping your state capture those federal funds. So bringing more money into the state to help with conservation there uh, for habitat projects, for youth, uh, you know, hunter education, uh, youth hunting opportunities, all sorts of things. Awesome. So let's get let's talk about how people can get into hunting i'm a tactical gun guy you introduced me to my first hunt set the hook totally hooked now i hunt on my own hunt dogless i bought my first hunting dog she's a puppy she's a fucking monster um, everything too it's gonna change my entire life for the better um all the pain and shit everywhere is going to pay off when she uh, points and retrieves her first bird this fall She'll be seven and a half months uh, on October 1st. No, she'll be, yeah, she'll be like seven months on the nose on October 1st. And that is a huntable dog. So I'm really excited for that. But um, for people in the tactical community, you guys shoot tactical all day long, but you're not testing your abilities on animals. You're not testing your adrenaline. You're not, you know, I, I hog hunt in Texas a couple times a year because it is a opportunity for me to apply. I could wear my nods and my helmet and my full kit because hogs are bullet sponges. And uh, you really get to apply yourself and, and put your tactical rifles to the test. And are you capable of doing what you want, you believe you are capable of doing with a weapon system uh, and, and, and taking an animal's life and doing that? And hogs are obviously a pest, so it's a little, it's different. It's not hunting to me, it's pest control. But it's an opportunity that you actually get to apply all these uh, training and sciences and everything that you work for um, on something that's living and breathing. And it's not for me. I don't. I don't. I don't enjoy killing things. Like when I shoot a hog, like I. I fucking it hurts me. You know, I shot a lot of hogs. You know, but I'm not up there like, woo, let's go kill some more fucking hogs. Like you know, we have some friends that are like that where they just love killing shit. I don't enjoy killing hogs. I enjoy being able to apply what I've learned in the tactical community and apply it on something and actually run my guns for how I usually train. Now, the, the hunting side of me is it's more poetic. It's getting out, even though I didn't shoot anything, I'm out there lugging around a gun all day behind a dog and I'm just experiencing habitats in my local community or other, other states. And it's been a great opportunity for me to travel to other states and get to learn other habitats and learn um, people's culture. Like hunting is a culture for a lot of these people. I didn't grow up with it in my family, but meeting people that have grown up like Kevin Murphy, squirrel hunting his whole life. Like that was his culture, that Kentucky, West Kentucky culture. 
So it's it's a really beautiful experience getting into hunting and finding these people that you can hunt with and learning how to hunt different species. And then you start to find out these species are very similar. Like like squirrels, first two hours of the morning, last two hours at night. There's a lot of deer, first two hours of the morning, last two hours at night. Turkey, same deal. So um, there's a lot of parallels between different species. But first, for the purpose of this podcast, why we wanted to get together is try to motivate people to get out there and get into hunting. And um, Zach, I'll let you start. How do you get started in hunting? What are the first steps uh, all the way through places that you can suggest people to get into mentorship, um, online, uh, YouTube, other people that you would refer people to, to watch and to educate themselves? Like that's the biggest step for me was like, where the fuck do I start? Yeah, yeah, well, and the, the, the problem is there's no easy answer for that because every single place is going to have a different, you know, different opportunity. Right. So, honestly, if you're, I think most of the people that, that would watch or listen to this are going to be in the tactical side of things. Um, and so hog hunting is a great one. It's a, a lot of folks use it as kind of a vacation getaway, and they'll go down to Texas and book a hunt and go hog hunting. Um, being able to run a gun under stress, sometimes running guns at night, um, just all the different things that people train for and then never really get to use. Um, being able to actually use that stuff um, along the same lines when you know that's there are different like mental modes uh, so hog hunting definitely more like extermination I mean there'll be some some hunts where you do you just do a sit and you're waiting and you maybe see one and shoot it well there are other ones where you see a boatload different mm-hmm. different ways you can hunt you can I've done thermals with Todd and, and you know you could do a helicopter hunt all sorts of different ways you I do that yep and, and so as an extermination hunt, I mean, you are absolutely helping the, the habitat down there by taking those invasive animals off the property. I mean, they're, they are destroying farmers' fields. They're just, they are multiplying like crazy. So along the same lines, if you want to do something like that and you're in a flyway for, for snow geese, uh, there are conservation uh, efforts being made to try to take snow geese off the landscape because they have multiplied in such a fantastic fashion. And so you'll have you'll have fields that have twenty thousand snow geese in them, wow. just mowing things down. And so all through the late season, you'll have you'll have folks that just set up just for snow geese, and they'll be they'll spend hours and hours setting up as many decoys as they own and can borrow, just to be able to entice those snow geese to land because they're you know they want to they want to push to that really you know wherever all those snow geese decoys are. The more decoys, the denser it is, that must mean the food's better there. And these snow geese just, they want to come in and just decimate crop. Mob mentality. So it is, it's wild. And so doing a, something like a snow goose hunt, where you get to run, I mean, if, if you're shooting a three gun, if you, if you have a three gun shotgun, that's the perfect shotgun for snow geese. Because you, you have, typically you'll have no limits. Um, you shoot as many shells at them as you want because they're trying to take them off the landscape. Um, out in the west here, uh, pigeons of all things. Um, so you'll have feedlots, you'll have places where they transition from like cliffs where they live or underpasses, you know, overpasses uh, over the feedlots to feed. And those pigeons, they steal an incredible amount of grain. So yeah. um, in the west, you know, setting up with decoys um, and decoying in pigeons, and there's typically no season and no limit for those. And these are, they're great eat. Oh, and the, the same thing with. Same thing with the hogs. Same thing with the snow geese. As long as you know how to prepare them. I mean, people might scoff at a snow goose, but 
But no, you can you can make some darn good stuff with a snow goose. If you so, slow cook anything, yeah, <laughs> slow so, cooking it's anything, about time and effort. Yeah, yeah. If you put some effort into it. Yeah, you can make that darn tasty. Yeah. So so that's one side of it. Um, if you're if you're kind of wanting just to to not necessarily do the the uh, te- you know, take advantage of tackle training or you know that if you're just wanting to get into hunting where you can, small game. It's the easiest way. Um, squirrels, squirrels, rabbits, a 22, which most people either have a 22 or can get access to them. They're affordable, yeah. or a shotgun that you already own. I mean, yeah. there are so many different ways to get into it. Squirrels, people may nowadays people seem to turn their nose up and eat a squirrel. Love squirrel, and it's it's so stupid because <laughs> it, as Kevin Murphy would tell you, they're they're out there running around in the woods eating the best stuff the woods has. Yep. So they're eating nuts, they're eating buds, they're they're just yeah. So it's it's a it's a premium game meat, and people don't believe it. It's very mild. So yeah. like for yeah. gaminess for a squirrel, squirrel is not gamey whatsoever. It's very mild. It doesn't it does have a unique smell when you bake it, um, but it is so. Kevin Murphy find that with every game meat though. Right, Kevin Murphy taught me how to do the one minute squirrel skinning, and it's fucking it's fast. Um, yeah. And uh, if you guys want to see how we clean them, we have it in the video uh, that we did with Kevin Murphy called Kentucky Roots. It's on our YouTube channel. But uh, squ- uh, he taught me how to cook squirrel. Take the whole carcasses, you butter them up, salt, pepper, tons of butter. Um, I put a little adobo on mine, and um, I, you bake them whole, 275 degrees for like three and a half hours, and just slow mm-hmm. cook them. Just make sure you wash. I you soak them overnight in a brine. I do equal parts sugar and salt. Brine them overnight. Wash them. Gets all the blood out. Make sure you really wash them because when you clean squirrels, they have those really fine hairs that will stick to them. So wash them super thoroughly. Uh, pat them dry. Stick them. Prepare them. Bake them. Slow cook them. And then I take. You can actually. People think oh squirrel. Squirrels have meat on it. Three squirrels will fill a Tupperware container this big. Like it's like. Three squirrels is the equivalent of like a rotisserie chicken that you get at the store. About equivalent amount of meat. It's more flavorful. And um, what I do is I cook them. And then once I had all the meat apart, I'll throw some taco seasoning in a pan and recook them in the taco seasoning. And it just breaks down all those proteins and fats. And um, we just make squirrel tacos. And they're unreal. So deck to table is a real thing. And uh, we get snow hair out back. I didn't see any. Um, They're out at night only. And you got to run them on dogs. Um, And obviously you can't take them at night. But um, I would love to. I've never had snow hair. But yeah, small game is awesome. And squirrel hunting is not easy either. And um, they hunt them with dogs down in Kentucky. Um, And, you know, the dogs tree them. But we have so many squirrels out back. I've shot a few this year and I had some squirrel here. And uh, our squirrels are bigger here in yeah. Kentucky. Well, you Way got bigger. red squirrels, you got gray squirrels, you got all sorts of squirrels. Um, and honestly, it, it, you don't have to have dogs that hunt squirrels. You can just head out with the 22, do some, basically just get into a spot where you think there are going to be squirrels. Look for look for nests in the winter when the when all the uh, leaves are off. Yep. So you kind of know where the squirrels are hanging out in the river bottoms. Um, you'll learn the trees that they like. In Big your trees. Yeah. And so... You basically just go and sit and wait. And once you've been sitting for 10 minutes, 
15 minutes, everything around you has resumed. I mean, you, you tromp through the woods getting there, but once you sit down, once you are quiet and just waiting, the woods wake up around you. Yep. Um, and so it's, it's, it's not only you're, you're out there hunting, you're also getting to experience the woods near you and understanding what's going on there. And you might find mushrooms, you might find, you know, you might be walking through and find, you know, morels or whatever, and uh, you, ha- you need to learn about that stuff. And once you know what it is, you, you know that it's an edible mushroom, man, you're gonna be looking for those as much as you are for squirrels. Yep. So, so yeah, just, it'll, it'll get you exposed to the woods, it'll get you exposed to the stuff around you. And if you live in a place that doesn't have, you know, squirrels and woods, I feel sorry for you, but but there are absolutely other small game opportunities there too. Um, it's just a matter of figuring out what they are. Sometimes the issue is like breaking through. It's knowing how to do it, where to go, what to do, um, and you just don't know where to start. Um, and probably the easiest way I would say to to find out where you, where you are is to get involved with an organization. Um, nowadays, people our age. We're not getting involved. We're not volunteering as a whole. Right. Um, the, the membership in all these different volunteer organizations has just plummeted in the last 20 years. Um, so finding an organization that you know you think might work for you. So it might be Pheasants Forever. It might be Rough Grouse Society. Just show up to a banquet. Find them on Facebook. Figure out when they're meeting and just show up. Um, the, the thing is just kind of ease your way in. Uh, don't be too brash and over the top to begin with, but just listen. Listen, volunteer, get involved. Uh, they're going to have a, a trash cleanup day where they clean up a couple miles of a road. Whatever, go do those things. Uh, you're going you're gonna to start to build relationships with the people that, that if they're in that organization, they're in that organization because this thing is a part of their life and they love it. And when they find out that you don't really know what you're doing, but you're happy to volunteer and kind of pick up what you can you're going to end up getting taken on hunts and they're going to mentor you just because of how much effort you put in volunteering for the organization that they care about. So they, you know, even if you don't have a clue what you're doing, you're showing up and helping with the pancake feed or whatever. And all of a sudden you're their best friend because they know you don't, you know, you don't have anything going on, but my bank's calling me, but, uh, they're gonna. It's gonna give you an intro into the hunting in your area that is invaluable. Um, you can't. I mean, you you could not get a better introduction um, to pheasant hunting in in Nebraska than getting involved with a Pheasants Forever Club uh, chapter in the area you live in. Right. Uh, it's it's gonna be the best intro to hunting you ever had. Right. So. So. That's the best way to get involved. Go take your hunter safety course. You might meet some people at the hunter safety course that are teaching it. I might be able to point you in a direction locally. Um, hunter safety courses, you can do a lot of it online, and then you have to show up in person to take the tests. Um, I didn't really study. I kind of just guessed. Passed with like a 92%. It's mostly common sense. I would I would push people to actually do them in person. Because you uh, learn a lot. Um, but you have to do the tests in person now. There's still the eight hour. I still had to do the eight hour in New Hampshire in class. And then at that class, the the afternoon portion, we were out. They did land nav. Um, They brought air guns out um, so people could shoot air guns and at least like handle it. Because there was actually like three or four people in the class that had never shot a gun. 
Um, firearm safety, hunter safety. They put up a tree stand and showed us the do's and don'ts of tree stands. Um, it was a more involved one, which was good. I appreciated it. You know, they, they put yeah. a lot more effort into it. Um, <clears throat> even though they put a lot of effort into it, I don't think they were the safest people. The guy said, never point a gun at anything you don't intend to destroy. And as he turns, he flags the entire class. Um, so, you know, you're going to get your FUDs and stuff like that. But, um, so that's, that's definitely the best way to start. And, uh, don't be afraid to put yourself out there and ask questions. Because once they realize, like you said, once they realize you don't know what you're doing, the hunting community really is one of education because, you know, they, some of these people might not have kids that they can pass this down to and they just thoroughly enjoy educating people like yeah like you know kevin's kids all flew the coop you know and kevin's super stoked that we came down to kentucky to learn how to squirrel hunt you know um you, you have opportunities like that so that's where to start if you want to get into hunting um and then learn your learn what you can hunt like you said learn what you can hunt in your state and then what is the most feasible for you to get involved and get started small game's awesome um birds that's that's a tough one it depends what birds are in areas i mean birds are you just have to put in the time easy or tough if you don't have a dog and you at least are observant in habitats you're going to be able to walk fields and shoot pheasant you're going to be able to walk uh and you know even the tiniest little plum thicket on the edge of a shitty field in you know a, a tilled field in kansas will hold quail you know, if you know what you're looking for, you can hunt dogless and, and, and be successful. You're just going to put in 10 times the amount of work. But You will, but, but that will just be for the initial. Because, again, if you, were to, if you were to kind of team up with somebody at a conservation organization and they take you on a hunt, you're going to start seeing what cover matters. Right. You're going to start seeing where those birds are actually being held and where they're feeding out into and what time of day they're going to be out feeding and all that type of stuff. You'll learn that. Um, and then you could go hit it on your own and just pick covers that are manageable for a person, you know, solo without a dog. Um, cause it does exist. It's, it's definitely out there. Yep. So you're going to, you know, be hitting little field, little fingers that, that come out into a field that, you know, they're going to hold one rooster and a covey of quail. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, it's just a matter of, a matter of getting, getting the experience to know what you're looking for. Yeah. In New Hampshire, when we hunt the stock pheasant fields, me and Gil, uh, my buddy Gil, we we don't have dogs. We see all these dudes that don't ever work their dogs throw a bunch of labs into a cover. And for pheasants, you always need blockers. So what we do is we just position ourselves at the end of the field or the end of whatever cover that all these people are beating, and all the birds fly out. And they're shooting and missing because they're fuds. They don't go shoot outside of the season. And you got me and Gil, we limit out in the first five minutes of, you know, the, we walk, you know, fishing games. They're like, all right, you guys go out in the field and go hunt birds. And all these dudes are running their dogs. I won't bring my puppy there this year. I got shot in the dick last year. Um, I got tagged at 60 yards with bird shot. It didn't penetrate anything, thank God. But um, I won't take my puppy there. But um, we go out and we, we, shot, we shot pheasant every time without dogs. Because these other guys don't. At least in New Hampshire, most of these guys that are hunting stock pheasant don't know how to hunt. So they're just throwing their dog in there. Um, they don't have blockers. They don't understand how pheasant actually 
run and how they operate. So, and you taught me how pheasant operate. So I pass that along, you know, to my friends here and we just stand in a line and the birds fly out. We shoot the birds. We walk back to the trucks and they're like, you don't have a dog, you know, and the same thing goes for a woodcock. I found it really beautiful, old orchard, public land. Um, it was privately owned, but the public goes there and it's an old decrepit orchard and all the, the, the trees are tented and the woodcock hang out under the tents. And I just slow, me and Gil will slow walk the tents, kick it up, get a bird to flush, pop them. And uh, Gil and I do really, really well without a dog uh, at a couple covers that we hit. So, you know, you just need to put it in the time and, and, and you can get it done. You just need to understand the birds. So um, don't be afraid to get into bird hunting and not have a dog. Yeah. I mean, just even walking habitat out in the woods with a shotgun uh, for hours, you, you're going to flush a bird. And if you know how certain uh, game upland game species flush and you know what they sound like when they flush, you know what you're shooting at, you know how to ID them, inherently if you're putting miles on your feet, you're going to be able to shoot something. Yep. Yeah, it's just all a learning process too. It just takes time. You can't expect to go out the first time and just know everything. It's going to take time. It's going to take a, a number of trips to, to kind of get your feet under you and kind of figure out what's going on. So, yeah. so we're in a digital age right now. Um, let's say someone doesn't have one of these local communities to them. Uh, what are some good online references or people to listen to, podcasts to listen to, that can help get people involved. Um, so, the one that's that's been near and near to my heart for the last few years is Project Upland. Uh, they've got a magazine. They've got uh, films that come out throughout the year. They have a podcast that's pretty darn good. Um, so you've got Project Upland. You've got the Hunting Dog Podcast with Ron Bain, um, On the Wing, um, and they're just just kind of you're going to want to try to find the the podcast that speaks to you. You've got uh, uh, birds, buds, and booze, which is uh, Tyler's podcast. Um, basically, just kind of figure out what, what, you know, you, you'll they'll, they'll all cover different things. They'll all have great folks on that'll that'll teach you about how you know how to hunt sharp tails, which uh, is something I've only ever hunted late season sharp tails, which are really wary. So I'm super excited to be out here where I can actually hunt them earlier and and try to actually get on. Me too. So, so yeah, well, we'll <laughs> that's me inviting we'll myself to Wyoming. <laughs> me too. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait like, to learn with you, Zach. Yeah. Well, and like hunts, um, Hungary partridge, um, sharp tails, stuff that I've only ever, I've never hunted hunts. I've hunted sharp tails a couple times. Um, but you know, trying to, trying to find these people who give you a bit of a primer on these things. Podcasts are a perfect thing for that. And you can hear different people's perspectives because how I hunt pheasants might be different than how the next person hunts pheasants. They don't, you know, I don't know. So uh, finding the podcast that speaks to you and just, just absorb them. Um, yeah. Um, Project Upland is definitely my number one. It's, that's uh, near and dear to my heart. And if you want to watch Alex's first hunt where he fails to uh, shoot his first grouse, yeah, you can go over to Project Upland. There's nothing out. in that video that shows me shooting at a grouse. So, um, <sighs> So now you, you talked a lot about birds, but there's a lot of people out there that want to hunt deer. You hunt deer. You hunt deer in Kansas. Um, anything deer related? Now, and, and speaking of Project Upland, AJ, uh, he wrote a book on urban deer hunting. 
Um, He used to live in Boston, and he used to take deer with a bow in the city. Yeah. Um, So, you know, you can can read uh, Guide to Urban. I I believe it's called The Guide to Urban Hunting. Um, Urban Deer. The Urban Deer Complex. Yeah, the Urban Deer Complex or something like that. Um, yeah. but you can find that he's, he got, he's so bored of shooting deer. He's shot so many deer, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So any deer references, uh, is there any value in like Meteor podcast or absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It can kind of be for somebody who's just new to it. It might be like throwing them in, throw them to the wolves. Yeah. Cause they, they are on some, some just incredible topics. They, they get into some pretty in-depth stuff. So for somebody like me who, you know, is used to a lot of the, the general hunting stuff seeing some of the wild stuff they do is, is great yeah but it might be kind of being thrown into the deep end uh for a new hunter so um but they do they do an incredible amount of content in general for uh for hunting um a lot of game cooking uh one that i found during the pandemic um uh, basically when i'm sitting at home you know bored out of my mind uh deer meat for dinner uh, i don't know how his channel escaped me for so long, but uh, he was in Saipan. He had gone to the Marianas Islands um, and then the pandemic hit. And so he, he stuck hunting and fishing in a, in a tropical paradise uh, due to the pandemic. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it sucks to be him. So, but no, he's, he, the great thing about him is he'll hunt and fish all the time. And then you get to see how he cleans it and how he cooks it um, on pretty much every video which is one of the more valuable parts because because that's a thing that you get to come away with when you hunt and fish that somebody who doesn't has no idea they have no idea they have this great resource for outside their back door um and he's showing you how to actually take advantage of it and clean it and cook it and, and what he does so uh, he's one that i've kind of been addicted to lately um besides that um they're just an incredible number we've got the the weatherby podcast here so talking about the the hunts that our partners and, and folks here in the office go on, um, getting kind of a, a look into backcountry hunting. I've, you know, in my previous life, I've, I've done some backcountry hunting, and the folks here live it. They absolutely live it. Yeah. So they're they're hiking in with everything they need for camp and and game processing and all that, and camera gear, um, and adding you know 20, 25 pounds of camera gear, which just makes it even tougher. Which is insane. But, uh, but yeah, just there. There's a wealth of different uh, content creators out there that are making great stuff. Yeah. Uh, so kind of find the one that speaks to you. Um, they're not all going to be your favorite. Yeah. So. And Project Upland was kind of devised around getting people from urban communities involved in hunting. Um, you know, just because you didn't grow up around guns or hunting, and you live in a city and you want to get out into the wilderness, it's a great opportunity to to get people well uh, even just people from urban communities uh just people who aren't exposed that's true too um i did notice i nick larson host the product upland podcast um go creep him on instagram and look who he follows uh one that i found through him is hunters of color and that's motivating um you know you, you always think of like all white people are hunters and stuff but there are so many people from all walks of life that hunt, that come from uh, urban communities, come from other countries that hunt and, and, and live in America and it's, you know, and adopt that into part of their culture. And um, that's another one, uh, another really good one to, to follow on Instagram is Hunters of Color. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Absolutely. So, so yeah, we got some, I mean, go ahead. Sorry. There, there's so many different, I mean, one thing we didn't talk about, you probably have a, a decent number of folks who like to shoot long range. Mm -hmm. um, and so another one, you know, you could, you could shoot some long range hogs, but, but really like prairie dogs, there are places in South Dakota that are just infested with prairie dogs. Right. Um, and so doing a prairie dog shoot, um, you're not going to eat them. I don't know. I don't know anybody who's ever ate a prairie dog and they carry some diseases, but, uh, but helping <laughs> control the, yeah, helping control the populations there. And then also like you look at people like Cameron Haynes, who is famous for being able to shoot his bow at incredible distances. And kind of his rule of thumb is if he's, if he is confident in his ability to shoot that bow, at, you know, whatever, 100, 120 yards. Wow. Um, he's confident in taking an animal at half of that. Right. So if, if with, you know, your, your, uh, I have six, a five Creedmoor, <laughs> if you're six, five Creedmoor, you're, you're confident hitting a, a plate at 1100 yards. Um, you know, you would realistically 550 would be, you know, it'd be a good guide for, for how far you should. 700 is my threshold where I'm like, okay, if wind is too switchy, I'm not confident in this, yeah. but hitting a, a larger animal, like a white tail buck at, 650 would be extremely doable for a very you know yeah, at least hitting that kill box i would say that but also you want to dial that back because you you want to you want your you know room for error to be much greater totally like get taking it. the animal taking the animal ethically and quickly um i would you know if you're confident on steel at 700 on that size of target i would dial it back to four so now so, so really <laughs> I would just say, uh, just to, if, if four is too easy, then you need to be able to hit that. It's all about out. wind. It's, it's just wind yeah. uh, for Absolutely. long shooting. It's just wind. And for bow, too. Um, and, yeah, that's one thing. I So I shot bow my whole life. And I stopped shooting bow about 10 years ago. I grew out of my bow and just didn't buy another one. Um, I just bought a Hoyt Carbon uh, in November of last year. Uh, it's now warm and nice enough to go shoot it. Um, but the guys at the Coyote Creek Outdoors, they were like, dude, if you have the capability to shoot 70 yards with your bow, shoot 70 fucking yards with your bow. The longer you can confidently shoot your bow, uh, the better you're going to be, the more confident you're going to be shooting, shooting a deer within 50, 40. At 30. At yeah. 30, you oh, know. Yeah. So, it's going to be a no-brainer. So especially gauging distances and getting a range finder out, doing all that. I Luckily enough for me, I have about 60 yards in my yard of lawn that I can cool. shoot. So, but if I miss, it's going out of the woods and losing my fucking arrow. So, um, but anyway, long story short. Motivation to be better. Motivation to be better. Um, I get asked a lot on Instagram, what gun, what scope should I put on this gun? What the fuck is that? Hold on. Uh, hold on. The Mighty Hunter. The Mighty Hunter. Oh, you're dead. I just killed you. It takes no joy in killing. Um, spiders, yes. I saw the spider flow across my room. Um, uh, sorry about that. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so I get asked a lot, uh, I get a lot, a lot of questions like, oh, I want, should I do 6.5 Creedmoor or 300 Wind Mag for elk and deer, and what scope should I use? But... Answering questions like that are so difficult because where are you hunting? We were in the Frank Church wilderness. Uh, it was ridiculous. I had too much power on my glass. It was heavy, and that extra weight beat the shit out of me. 
Who could have told you that you, you were putting too much scope on that gun? You That's told weird. me to have at least 500 yards of range. We, the most we had was 40 yeah. yards. You cherry pick in here. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, an NX8 2.5 to 20 Night Force is as much as my gun in weight. Okay. So, long story short, it, it depends what you're doing. If Absolutely. you want to hunt elk in the lower part of Idaho, out in the plains where it's open and they're not pressured by wolves, maybe you want to hire glass so you can take one at, at distance. Um, I wouldn't shoot an elk with 6.5 Creed more. Um, I mean, it depends what elk you're shooting. Some elk are more resilient than other elk. Frank Church Absolutely. elk are... Yeah bomb proof you got to shoot them four or five times which we shouldn't say that too loud you're supposed to shoot it's all once. about it's all about shot placement it's all about the right bullet for the amount of speed it's going to be going at the animal um yeah but the general, cover the cover in the frank church wilderness you might have only a head shot you know or you might just see a you know to take an animal they basically like if you see a head shoot it in the fucking head if you want to take it home because you might not get another opportunity you know, and that's up to you. Do you want to mount it? Do you want to, you know, but um, it depends what you're trying to accomplish. But people don't understand, like, if you're, yeah, if you're shooting speed goats in Wyoming, yeah, you're going to want glass and a gun that can put distance and cheat wind a little bit. Flat shooting with the, that can use a good bullet. Yep, that can use a good bullet. Efficient. So it really depends on what you're after. It depends on what you've shot before. There's so many variables. Um, it depends on where you're hunting, what the cover's like, the distance. Um, you mentorship know, so comes many... in here. <laughs> What's that? This is where mentorship comes in. It does. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it might be that you're on a hunt like that backcountry hunt and a super light rifle. Um, like that's the, that's the beauty of having come over here to Weatherby is the super light rifles. We've got guns that are under five pounds, um, that have a, a really effective break and a really effective, uh, recoil pad. And right. so you're not actually destroying yourself like an old five pound rifle would have back in the day right um but yeah um it all depends so that's about finding finding people that you you can bounce things off of there are going to be a lot of cartridges that are going to be general for the you know hunting in the united states you can't really go wrong with 270 or 3.6 they'll do the job or 300 win mag cartridges <laughs> win mag. um the thing is once you once you've been doing it for a while, one of the things about it is energy at the animal. Being able to have enough energy when that bullet hits the animal to, to ethically quickly kill it. And so that's kind of the, the theme here at Weatherby is velocity. Um, we do cartridges that are super hot. So mm -hmm. they're gonna have they're gonna have the power at the animal to to create the 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 wound that it need that needs to happen for an ethical quick kill. Right. So like the two fifty seven Weatherby Magnum. It'll do most everything in the U.S. Yes, it's it's a heck of a cartridge. So um, finding a finding the gun that that matches what you can afford one is it doesn't do any good if you're going to go out and buy a you know a two thousand dollar gun and that exhausts all the money that you could have spent going on trips and hunting. Right. So you might as well buy a six hundred dollar gun, buy a better piece of glass, and then go on a trip. Actually take the trip. So. It just depends. And if you already have a gun, there's very likely something you can take that gun and go yes, hunt. Exactly. You don't need a new gun. It'd be nice, but you don't I, need it. I would not shoot an elk with 6.5 Creed more. Um, we actually did see someone shoot an elk with 6.5 Weatherby at 35 yards. The RPM. And it went through the animal and never 
created that wound cavity that you wanted to because oh it created a wound cavity it just yeah especially zipped, at that distance zipped through it's, it it's just moving too fast um you know so distance is important picking a caliber for the distance you believe that you're going to be taking an animal and getting more bullet construction yeah and having the right bullet construction so if you have a too like too strong of a bullet and it's not going to expand i mean yeah. I mean, some of those bullets are specifically strong because they're breaking through bone and shoulder plate. And yep. then that fragments the bullet and causes the animal to die and bleed out quickly. But if it's too strong and you hit them in a soft area, it's just going to freaking pop ice pick holes in it. And the, I think the animal's going to get away. Given the number of shots taken by that individual, I don't know if it ever even hit. Well, they said <laughs> not the first one he missed uh, didn't hit at all. The second one, though, they said that they found evidence of impacts from him and they had exits the other on the other side the same size as the entrances <laughs> but again i don't trust anything they said. um so you got that um a lot of times people ask me on instagram they say uh what sidearm should i carry when i'm hunting deer it's like you shouldn't there's nothing unless you're in i mean you're in wyoming so you got grizzlies right yeah so yeah. you got grizzlies. So if you're in a grizzly habitat, yeah, carry a grizzly gun. But yeah. I'm in the northeast of New Hampshire. We got bears, bobcats, coyotes. Uh, the only thing I'm afraid in New England is of moose. Yeah. Bears don't scare me unless I'm between, you know, between uh, a mother bear and her cubs. My nine millimeter that I carry every day with me will probably curb a female black bear in my area. But I'm only afraid of moose, and that's just avoid them. Um, yeah, you know. I mean, the other factor in all this is um, sometimes you're dealing with two-legged predators, um, especially with uh, bow hunters. Um, there have been instances where folks get into <clears> an argument about you know somebody being in a deer stand where that guy wanted to set up his deer stand, and there are famous cases where people didn't have a way to protect themselves, and the guy shows up and kills them. So I mean, it's it's weird. So uh, people get weird. There there are times where hunters get territorial, and aren't the greatest people in the world. So uh, depending on where you are, you know, it might behoove you to carry your CCW if you're out bow hunting. Yep. But it, in the, for the most part, no. you've got if you've got a rifle, you've got something that can take care of whatever whatever's there. Right. So, so it all it all depends. I mean, I'm I always carry a CCW on me. That's just me. Like, no matter what I do. I didn't carry one in Idaho because there's no grizzlies where we were in Idaho. Um, yeah, and that they was, can't swim the river. That's and they can't swim the state. river, according to the state. And uh, that's extra weight that you don't need to carry. Um, but if I was in an area like Wyoming where you do have grizzlies, I probably would carry something that would help me in that situation. So, again, yeah. just pick something for the area that you're in. Um most of the United States, a sidearm is not necessary, other than like, like you said, two-legged, two-legged deer, um, causing issues. But um, yeah. other than that, um, what else would you like to t- touch on, Zach? Do you have any? Man, oh man, we've we've done a lot. This podcast is mostly like intro to hunting, how to get started, a couple stories, and but is there anything like really pertinent that you think you can share with listeners that might also help them out? Well, and honestly, one of the things that if if you need a little extra push to get into hunting, like you want to get into hunting, but, you know, you don't know where to start and all that, 
honestly, getting a hunting dog. Like a lot of people, if you if you want to have a family dog um, that also does other things, it's been you know built to do other things. You could get a squirrel dog. You don't have to get a bird dog. You get a squirrel dog. Um, you could get a rat terrier and go ratting. Like that's one of the coolest things I've ever seen in the cities is they'll have like groups of people that get together at night and go ratting and they take their, their rat terriers and their, you know, Jack Russells and all these different uh, dogs that are meant to, to hunt vermin and go out as a group and, and hunt rats in the city. That's wild and it's really cool. Um, but having a, a family companion that also serves another purpose and then the, the more you're around a bird dog, you're gonna see what they can do and the, the, just the different things they open up and you're gonna fall in love. Yep. You're gonna love, I mean, even just following the dog and watching what they do is more fun than anything. Is seeing that, that puppy that you brought up and worked with um, learn how to do the thing they were bred to do. Um, it's neat, it's really yeah. neat. And that can, that can be like the extra push. And if, if you have a bird dog that only gets to go out bird hunting a couple times a year, yeah, it is what it is, that's fine. But it'll enrich your life. It really will. Yeah, that's I. We didn't talk about that, but that is one of the most gratifying things that I have got to experience is hunting over different breeds of dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, We say hunting over because obviously we're shooting over the dogs. Um, Getting to hunt over Weimaraners, um, English Pointers, uh, English Setters, uh, Chesapeake's. Yep. GSPs, uh, wire hair pointers. I your little cocker spaniel. Your little cocker spaniel. Yeah. Um, and one thing to keep in mind, guys, if you are picking out a bird dog, you got to pick or pick out a hunting dog because there's yeah. blood dogs, uh, blood tracking dogs. I mean, even Deutsch Kutzars, which is the species that I or the breed that I got, they use them in Europe for fur hunt, like for foxes. They use them for waterfowl. Um, so it's a, it's a multi-purpose animal. I, I got her for specifically bird hunting, but you got to make sure that when you get a dog that you're going to a breeder that breeds hunting dogs, just because you got an English purebred lab doesn't mean it comes from a line of hunting dogs. Yes, there are things in their brain that are hunting specific, but you know, labs these days are bred to be house dogs. It's like the quintessential white people <laughs> yeah middle america yeah. you know well, family it's dog. also the health aspect a, a reputable breeder will have you know they'll have information on how the hips of these dogs have done for several generations they'll right they'll they'll know the things to look for before they do breeding and finding one that comes well recommended mainly for the health aspect right you don't want to get a dog that has so many health issues yeah i've, I've been there it's, oh it, you get a lab with hip dysplasia can't hunt yeah. for more than an hour before you have to carry it back. Yep. You have a yep. dog that you have a, a pound dog that's a pretty yeah. awesome hunting dog that you got on a whim, but she's got really horrible allergies. Absolutely, she can yeah. only hunt certain times of the year. Yeah, it has to be snowing and wet for her to be able to hunt, and she loves it, and she's an incredible dog. But there have been times where she has an allergy attack, and I'm carrying her out of the field, yep. and. It is what it is. She was, you know, she was a dog that was at my local pound and has turned into a great hunting dog. But if you're actually going out of your way to go get a dog and you're not doing a rescue, um, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely do your research. 
put a little time in that will pay off in the long run. The other side of it is every recognized breed in the United States, as far as like AKC breeds, every one of them has a specific rescue. So if you know that you want a Brittany um, and you know you don't know where to start, there are dogs out there that come from hunting families that are trained and have hunted for five years that are now in the rescue because the old, the old guy who had him has passed away right. and he ended up, the dogs ended up going to the rescue. And so there are opportunities through the, through the breed specific rescues that are incredible. Yep. So if you want to get a hunting dog, you, can, you end up with a five-year-old uh, Brittany that's actually already hunted. Like a finished dog that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. They're all going to come with their baggage, but you know what? We all come with baggage. Right. So, so yeah. Uh, NAVDA. NAVDA. NAVDA is a great resource for hunting dogs. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's basically a... Uh, a system under which people learn how to train and test their dogs and see how well they do. Um, so getting involved with the NAVDA chapter near you uh, will help you find who breeds good dogs and who can help you train dogs and who can, you know, they have frameworks on, on what those dogs should be able to do. Um, and so it's one of those things, it's time. People shy away from things like this because it's a time commitment. Right. Uh, and a dog is a time commitment. but. You can get so much more out of it as a result. Out of your uh, life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it'll push you to do more things. Um, the more dogs I got, the more hunting I did, and the more hunting I wanted to do. Right. So it just, it's kind of one of those things, once you get into it, once the once everything starts rolling, um, a whole new world can open up. So, yeah. Well, I think that is a great way to end this podcast. Um I think we got plenty of information for people that want to get into this. Uh, we're going to have to do this again after one of our next hunts. We can have a post-hunt podcast. Maybe you're going to get to host the hunt this time. Ooh, yeah. Come out to New Hampshire. Now that I have yeah. a dog. Um, yeah. yeah, dude. I Now that I know where some good woodcock cover is, we'll shoot more woodcock in one day than we did in a week up north. But, um, yeah, we'll have to have you out this fall for uh, – bird hunt upland bird hunt new hampshire we also have chucker here by the way really yeah it's on the it's on the uh, state website for uh, small game or for uh, bird, upland birds excellent um, i don't know where but they're here yeah being something mountainous chucker from india yeah. funny how that works um yeah. anyway zach hein you are the uh, director of marketing over at weatherby congrats on your new position um and uh, thank you for everyone tuning in and listening to episode nine of the A&R Design Unholstered podcast. Uh, have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you for listening to the A&R Design Unholstered podcast with Alex Costa.